the art of questions. I actually want to start with something that I, um, just an amazing thing that happened this week. Isla, who is age two, stopped, asked her first question. And I was expecting it to be why, but it wasn't. It was, what's this? And, and it's amazing. I, one of the things I've noticed about her is that, is that when, you, when she says something, tree, or whatever it is, chair, it is, there's a question underneath this, this thing that she says. Even her statements feel like questions. He's like, are you seeing this? Are you seeing this tree? What? So there, there's something amazing about this, but that can be contrasted pretty well with, with what happens at academic conferences. I went to one recently, it was a food symposium, and there were some amazing papers, people said incredible things, food, you would never think this, but food can be politics and gender and ideology and all sorts of things. I, I learned a, a new word or a new phrase, food security, people guarding their food, that's not what it is, but that's what it sounds like. And the papers were 20 minutes, which is very typical of an academic conference, and then there's question time. And question time is just really a time for people to, it's really opinion time, where people can disguise their opinions as questions. <laughs> and it's absolutely nauseating. It's like, I, I can t say this honestly, I left the conference on day two, halfway through the day, I just couldn't take, I couldn't take it anymore. It was so terrible. Opinions are basically people's agendas, and they, they don't really necessarily have anything to do with the presentation that's been going on. And I do want to say this, I've been guilty of having opinions too. Uh, so, so I'm not trying to, trying to say that, you know, it's them and not me. I think that this is a problem. I mean, it's happened at TGIF. We have question time and not a single question gets asked. And, and I think that's the problem is that we don't necessarily know how to ask questions or we don't necessarily know what to look at. Um, so the fact is that it's really easier to be a commentator than a questioner. And so I've, I've just come to this realization that I want to be a better questioner and what better way to do this than to pre prepare a talk on it. Um, a good question comes out of this, this need that I have. Why, why would anyone want to learn how to ask good questions? And the first reason for this is that questions lead to good thinking. Um, good thinkers throughout history have always valued questions. I've got a couple of quotes that kind of confirm this. Voltaire says, judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. He is saying judge a man, which is like, so apart from the do not judge thing, um, he's still saying that's how you figure out if someone's on the right track. Paul Samuelson uh, says good questions outrank easy answers and the reason for this might be something that Thomas Berger gets at which is that the art and science of asking questions is the source of all knowledge. So questions lead to knowledge. But questions are also maybe the source of wisdom which uh, the Egyptian writer Nagib Mahfouz says you can tell whether a man is clever by his answers. You can tell whether a man is wise by his questions. The wise man doesn't give the right answers, he poses the right questions. That's actually something that Claude Levi Strauss says. Uh, shout out to semiotic theorists. Okay, so Lillian Smith also says this so well. When you stop learning, stop listening, stop looking and asking questions, and specifically she's referring to new questions, then it is time to die. 
I mean, in this, it's, it's a fairly profound thing to say, but in it, she's kind of hinting at the fact that questions make us know that we're alive. It's a source of life, it's a source of consciousness and awareness. And I think someone who says this really well is, is Picasso. He said that computers are stupid because they can only give us answers. So Isaac's talk last week on this, the uh, technological singularity raised a lot of questions. And I think one of them was what happens when computers start knowing how to, answer, uh, how to ask good questions. So good questions lead to good thinking. It's about knowledge and wisdom and awareness. But the second thing that I think, reason why I think we should learn how to um, ask good questions is that good questions are the foundation of good relationships. Um, built into the idea of the question is the idea of listening. So we ask so that we can hear an answer, we can hear what someone is saying. Imagine someone were to ask you a question and then refuse to hear what you think about the question. And I, I, I say that that is a hypothetical, but I'm sure you've experienced this. Someone asks you a question and you say something and, and you actually realize somewhere in the middle of what you're saying that they're looking to have their opinions confirmed and they're waiting for you just to confirm what they already think. <coughs> That's terrible. <laughs> And I'm sure if you've had that experience, which I've had from time to time, it's just, you feel like, well, there's no real room for me over here. I'm not really here to, for any purpose. Let me just rather leave or something. Um, so questions also presume connection in terms of relationships. And, not, and it's not just about the level of thought. It's about the, the level of emotion and connection. Um, so I presume that questions will help us in our relationship life. I think this applies to our spiritual life as well. Uh, I think there should be a study of questions asked of God throughout the Bible. And I'm pretty sure you'll find thousands. I didn't have time to look at that because yeah, that would re require reading the whole Bible. Or, or doing a find and search for question marks. <laughs> that could maybe work uh, in this electronic age. So good questions build relationships as well. They, they have an emotional value and a spiritual value. But what is a good question? Is that a good question? Uh, I don't know. To presume that there is such a, a thing as a good question is to presume that there is such a thing as a bad question. And that seems to go against common sense because I'm sure you've heard people say, there's no such thing as a bad question. Have you heard that? It's like, no, no, just ask whatever question. But there are bad questions. And I hope by the end of this, you'll have a sense of that. I'm going to focus on what makes a good question. But implied in that is the thing that goes against that is the bad question. So I've already suggested that a big part of understanding uh, what makes a question good involves understanding what a question can do in terms of its, its ability to foster wisdom and knowledge and awareness and relationships and that kind of stuff. Um, so... To understand what makes, makes a question bad, I think we need to just focus on that thing I mentioned early, earlier, opinion. Um, this is the question time uh, in question time, supposedly, in conferences. This is where you actually find it. But one of the philosophers that found opinion particularly problematic was Plato. Remember that all philosophy is really a footnote to Plato. It's all the, he said everything, and then everyone's like, well, let's see what we can add or go against, depending on what kind of, uh, if you're an iconoclast or not. Um, but the hermeneutic philosopher, okay, so a lot of uh, what's guided me is this guy, Hans-Georg 
Gadamer. Um, the tr Truth and Method is the most boring title for a book that is so incredibly illuminating. And it's rather long, so it's sort of 550 pages. But Gadamer, is, his, his fascination is with the event of understanding. Understanding doesn't just, doesn't just sort of, it's not something we arrive at. It's something that we're searching for and then it happens to us. And, and this is something that he, he believes that questions are at the center of this. So he says this about, specifically about opinion. He says, Plato shows in an unforgettable way where the difficulty lies in knowing that one does not know. That's where the difficulty lies in actually arriving at the, the understanding that we do not understand. That's the center of Socratic wisdom. Socrates was such a, uh, Plato's mentor, Socrates was such a wise guy that sounds terrible. A wise man. Uh, because he knew that he didn't know. And then Godamer carries on. It's the power of opinion against which it is so hard to obtain an admission of ignorance. It is opinion that suppresses questions. Opinion has a curious tendency to propagate itself. It would always like to be the general opinion as well, just as the word that the Greeks have for opinion, doxa, also means the decision made by the majority in the council assembly. So just to kind of point out a few things that he's saying here, opinion is three things. It's a refusal to acknowledge just how much we don't know. And just a little, just so I can give you a little bit of humble pie, we always know less than we know. Fact. Fantastic, right? So, like, we're at the mercy of our ignorance, and yet it's so hard to acknowledge this. Uh, the second thing that opinion is, opinion refuses to allow other opinions. Uh, so, it's all about con confirmation bias. We need to confirm what we believe already. And really, that's a kind of propagation of self. This, the third thing is a, uh, an opinion is a decision that conforms to the status quo, the majority rule, rather than to truth. So Gautama's big thing is truth. Uh, and we arrive at truth beyond method, not just through method. It's something that we, we uh, find happening to us whether we like it or not, if we're open to it. So very interesting thing about the human brain. It works according to incentives every single time. The incentive for coming to TGIF at this ridiculous hour might be the coffee. It might be this... The incentive of learning. Sometimes it's the company in terms of the regulars. You want to see the same people again. So there's, there's always an incentive there. It's either the carrot or the stick. It's really simple. Uh, something behind you that's going to hit you or something that's rewarding. Something that feels like a, a, a pleasant experience. So with opinion, we see three incentives, at least three incentives at work. At, at least as I managed to to figure out after a, a solid two minutes of thought. Uh, <laughs> so the incentive, firstly, um, it's, it's about speaking with the majority. And that means it's the incentive not to be excluded. People hate being excluded. It's a terrible experience. So let's just go with the flow. It's much, much easier. There's no real, like the incentive to go against the flow, it's, most people don't. It's just too hard. Um, the second incentive is the incentive to feel right. It's so nice to be right. It's a really strong incentive. And this is generally far more appealing than the incentive to feel ignorant or to know that you're ignorant. The third incentive is that it's the incentive of the default or the shortcut. 
human beings are really profoundly lazy. If you're a lecturer, you know this, or a teacher, you know this. People don't want to learn. There's always resistance, like, why am I learning this stuff? Because it'll help you get through the world. Why do I have to? Well, that's a good question, right? Like, ask that question. It's a good thing. So um, one example of, of finding how, just how lazy people are, we, we work more according to intuition than according to calculation. Most of our rationalizations are lies that we tell ourselves for things we've done that we had no reasons for. Okay? Um, and and you, if you want to read about the psychology of this, Daniel Kahneman has an incredibly brilliant book called Thinking Fast and Slow. We think fast, we should slow down. That's basically, that's a ridiculous summary of the book, but anyway. So opinions are hardly ever fact-checked. You don't need to check them. Like, you just need to say what you think. Uh, conversations around bries. That would be a lot of non-fact-checking. And it's, there's no rigorous examination, so there's no need to check if you're ignorant. Again, that's the problem. You're hiding your own ignorance from you. So underlying this world of opinions is a very simple vice, <coughs> pride. It's pride that does not want to be seen as ignorant. It's pride that sets up rigidity and dogmatism. And it's likely, in more theological terms, to confuse epistemic certainty with faith. Just wanted to up the level of language there. Okay, so what that means... <laughs> Epistemic certainty, and this is a very common problem. We think that when, when it comes to believing in, like believing in God, that that's about believing that there is a God. And a lot of Christians I know are very convinced that there is a God, but they have no faith. A lot of Christians I know are atheists. So there's this, this tendency to think that faith is something that you can confirm through knowledge. I think faith transcends knowledge. And I think opinion forces us into the realm of epistemic certainty. I know this, even if I don't. Does that vaguely clear up what I was saying? No, okay. <laughs> don't worry about it, it's not that important. Okay, so I, I have this really amazing friend, his name is Roberto Cervent, and he and I are writing a lot of things together. He's, he lives in the States, and I got a chance to, to visit him in November, and I discovered that, I mean, I knew this before, but it was so great to spend basically two weeks with him and discover just what an amazing questioner he is. I, I just, I kind of sat in awe of just the questions he asked. And I think that's, it really got me thinking. So I actually sent him a, a message and I said, what, what do you think makes a good question? You're so good at questioning. What, what is the thing you say? So he sent me a text message and this is what he, he said. Uh, gosh, you know, in my experience, the good question has been the question that's embarrassing to ask. Because it'll make me come across as someone who doesn't know anything. Roberto is Socrates. Like, I mean, he just, this is just a quick thing he thought of, but it's just like exactly right. In other words, what is the question you really want answered? The question that you want answered so much that you don't care if you look stupid. I just love that it's, and I mean, he's, so, he's a brilliant intellectual as well, and I, think, and I think this is a sign of it, why he is that. Like, because he goes, well, let's pretend I, not even pretend, like, let's say I don't know anything. Let's say I can't be certain of anything. Let me figure out what the way forward. So I, I asked him, so does a question put you in the seat of the learner? Is that what a good question does? He said, and he responded to this, well, I wonder how much questioning well is virtue-centered. It's about, it's, by the way, these are the text conversations I have with 
you're ever wondering what my text conversations look like, this is what they look like. Uh, <laughs> um, it's about learning to be curious and imaginative and really interested in people. And it's about being okay with looking silly. I think the worst kinds of questions are the ones that are just attempts to show off how much you know, which we've seen so much. We've all heard these at conferences where someone will say something like, your presentation reminded me of Heidegger's concept of yada, 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 thank you very much. It's, there's so much in this that I just, I mean, I could have based the whole talk, in some ways I did, on this, on just what Roberto has given me. So, he says that questions are virtue-centered. Isn't that an amazing thought? That asking good questions is really about first checking, is this a virtuous question to ask? A good question is the person who is willing to eat humble pie, and a good question, a bad questioner is fond of the high horse. And I actually started wondering if humble pie and high horses is a good title for a book. Um, but that's a question, I don't know. <laughs> Another way to say this is that a good questioner is willing to question himself before he questions others. And that's what I, I often hear the bad questions that I've heard of people just so, they're just questioning them. Like, like, that person must be wrong. I'm right. That's kind of, so there's this refusal to acknowledge that maybe that person knows something. Um, so the good questioner allows himself or herself to question others in order to question himself or herself. And this actually echoes something that Socrates says, I know you won't believe me, but the highest form of excellence is to question oneself and, one, and others. So I actually I couldn't help but look at the parallel between loving others as we love ourselves and, and actually turn that into question others as we question ourselves. Maybe that's not a bad principle to, to latch on to. This is all very abstract. I really understand that. So as we go along, I want to kind of get very concrete and, and look at like ways to look for good questions. So the first thing I've discovered is that a good question is open. Godema has this to say on openness. He says, to ask a good question means, or a question means to bring into the open. The openness of what is in questions consists in the fact that the answer is not yet settled. It must still be undetermined. It must be awaiting a decisive answer. Every true question requires this openness. But to say this is not to say that openness, uh, the openness of the question is boundless. It is limited by the horizon of the question. Posing a question implies both openness and limitation. I would almost say that there's almost like, the, there's like a gutter is open, but it furrows the thought. Okay, so like thoughts can flow within that, but there's no defined end to it. So before uh, getting to limitation, I just, want to I just want to point out that openness implies risk. And I think to ask a good question is to place yourself at risk. And that's, a, again, with the idea of, of virtue being at the center of questions, that requires courage. To place your knowledge at risk, to go like, well, maybe I don't know this. Maybe I have some uncertainty that I should be actually addressing. Often, you'll notice this in people, often the most dogmatic people are the people that are using their dogmatism to hide their doubt. And I think that's a problem. I think that uh, refuses the kind of openness that is needed. And part of openness is to understand that the answer may actually transcend the, the confines of the question. A good example of this is the book of Job. So you have Job 
asking lots and lots of questions. And then God comes in. And you presume, ah, you know what's going to happen. God's going to show up, and then he's going to answer all the questions. And he doesn't care about the questions. He almost says, you're on the right track with this asking questions thing. And then God asks some more questions. And I think that, that idea is that, you know, Job has these parameters to the questioning, and he expects a particular kind of answer. And what he gets instead is a person. And I think that's a very interesting thing philosophically. I think uh, Christianity itself kind of subverts this question-answer structure in, in some ways because it presumes this beautiful phrase in hermeneutics. It presumes the surplus of meaning. It's like your question is a cup, and your cup is going to overflow when someone fills it with an answer because it's just going to... And then you're going to have to find other cups, right? That's, it's almost going to be this panicky thing of figuring out how to, how to get everything and knowing that you're not going to make it. So Gautama again says, says something beautiful around this. He says the art of asking questions is the art of questioning even further. So you start with a question and then you ask another one and then you ask another one. And the, he says basically this is the art of thinking. It's called dialectic because it is the art of conducting a dialogue. Dialectic consists not in trying to discover the weakness of what is said, but in bringing out its real strength. Isn't that an amazing thing? What happens if asking questions is not about dismantling what someone has said? Maybe that will be required at some point. I'll get to that. But maybe it's primarily about bringing out its real strength. Presuming, let's say it's a speaker, presuming that they're actually saying something meaningful, and you want to draw out even more meaning. You want to, to get a sense of like, what more could there be to deepen this argument. Maybe once you've deepened it properly, you might realize, oh, maybe there are some problems. But let's find its real strength. So the second thing is good questions have limitations. I, I would put it more directly in this way. A good question has a direction. So Gautama says the essence of the question is to have sense. Is to be sensible. And this sense involves a direction. A question places what is questioned in a particular perspective. When a question arises, it breaks open the being of the object, as it were. Isn't that such a beautiful image? It breaks open the being of the object. So you're looking at something and you're trying to figure out what it is. What is going on there? So there's a tension between openness and limitation. And this actually gives rise to what, what is called the paradox of questioning, which is that Simple questions get detailed, long answers. Complex questions tend to get very short answers. You can try this out. I'm going to give you a few examples. So, very, so if you ask, a, which happens at academic conferences, you ask very lengthy questions with like lots of footnotes and like sources and all that, and the answer that the speaker gives is, well, yes, you could see it that way. <laughs> So another way of saying this is, is that you're looking for a story. You're looking for someone to give you a story. Um, so complex questions will tend to show how clever the questioner is, but not how wise they are. And that actually often undermines the whole point of asking questions. So another way of saying this, simple questions allow for a story or a conversational dialogue. Complex, complex questions tend towards either yes or no. And when, there, when there's only, and yes or no is all either confirmation or negation. And I think con, we have a problem in our society with 
uh, even let's just look at movies, the way we, we look at movies. When, when someone walks out of it, they liked it or they didn't. Ugh, that's so boring. It's just, can, can we not have a conversation about what, it was, what was going on there? I think that's, that's a much more illuminating thing. So a good question really has two qualities. It requires a narrative response, and it focuses on a single issue. In a way, you could say this is accuracy and efficiency, but those are very boring uh, leadership uh, manual type words. So one of the things I've realized is um, when, when I, one of the reasons I struggle to ask questions, this is a, just a very personal note, is that I want to know everything at once. Right now, everything. So that's part of the, so I'll ask like, I might tend to ask multi-layered questions. That's okay, it's not a bad thing. But in a way, what this is getting at is, if you want to have a direction, ask one at a time. Figure out what's the first thing, and then what's the second thing. And to help get a sense of what this direction is, it helps to, this is so simple, but it needs to be said. A good question tends to start with an interrogative. Who, what, when, where, why, how? Are there any others? Have I left something out? Um, if. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. <laughs> Actually, what if is one of my favorite, but there's what in the beginning of that one. Uh, favorite question. So open is like, do you, could you actually tend to only get one word answers? And this is, could you elaborate? But then there's no real direction. Then the speaker gets to elaborate in, in whatever way they like. So in a way, you could, you could ask, you're asking leading questions. Every good question is a leading question. It's dealing with the, the direction, the assumptions that you want to take it at. And it's interesting that a question can face basically four directions. Uh, it can look at the origin of the thought, a good question. Bad questions face everywhere. No one knows what, what they're doing. So a good question, I'm going to name them and then I'll go back and give you examples. So a good question looks at the origin, can look at the origin of the thought, because all thoughts have a history. It can look at implications, so that's the one direction. Origins, implications. It can look at support, look in the direction of support, uh, and it can look at opposing thoughts and objections. So um, regarding the first, it can... A good question looks at the origin of a thought. All thoughts of history. So you can ask questions like, where does that idea come from? Or where did you get that idea? Or who was the first person to think that thought, apart from Plato? <laughs> second, second direction that a question can face can look at implications. And I think this is, this is a, I mean, again, some of this stuff will be obvious, but it's a really good thing to think about. What does this idea imply? Where does this take you regarding this thing? Um, so you're looking at the consequences of what is, is being said or, or done. So the third direction that a question faces is towards support. What research has been done to support your, your opinion? Um, very interesting to argue about because uh, I've done this and I've upset a lot of people. Spanking. Is, a, is very, a, a lot of Christians are f fond of spanking. The research on that is that it's bad for kids in every way. It produces low self-esteem, it causes enormous problems. And the Christian response is, spare the rod, spoil the child. <sighs> like, okay, but that might not be a 
factual statement. Something else to think about aside from this, this talk. But, but it's interesting how very few people actually take the time to go, wait, is my opinion valid? Is there something that's going to support this? What, by the way, someone has thought about what you're thinking about. We are that far along in history. Okay? So just go and look. It's really not that difficult. Um, so that's, uh, then in terms of looking at opposing thoughts and objections, that's the other direction that questions can, can face. Um, what criticisms are there of that idea? This is going to be specifically very, very important in, in fields like philosophy or theology or cultural studies. Um, because there, is, there are contesting opinions. The Bible has contesting opinions. Okay, so like the, one writer is going to contradict the other. And that's okay. That's what it means to be human is to have those because it's in the dialogue that the answer emerges or the way to live emerges. Third thing that makes a question good. A good question is empathic. It's about feeling with someone. Good questions try to understand the perspective of the person who is being questioned. They strive to cross boundaries to see the question as a bridge. A bridge to wonder. That's the book, title of a book I saw the other day, and I just loved it. A bridge to wonder. You want to read it, right? You know you, know you do. But it's, it's theological aesthetic, and it's probably a bit complicated. So try to think about the question you might want to ask, if want to be asked, if you were the, people, uh, the person speaking or being asked. What question was... So you're immediately doing unto other, questioning unto others as you would have them question unto you to misuse the King James. Uh, so maybe think of a question that no one has asked before. That's also, like, be creative in questioning. Uh, Richard Bach says this. Richard Bach, who I, I've only read one of his books, and it was interesting. Um, the simplest questions are the most profound. Where were you born? Where is your home? Where are you going? What are you doing? By the way, one of, what was one of the first questions that was asked of Jesus? Anyone? Anyone? Where do you come from? It's so interesting. Not, what do you do for a living? It probably looked like he did many things, but where do you come from? Because that gives context, that gives a profound sort of sense of his story. And I think there's, there's some truth in that. Empathic questions make room for the other person to be themselves. And this is, I think, one of the, the things that we, we can really learn. Questioning and to question and to listen is to ennoble people. Is to pay attention to who they are, to give room for what they bring to you, but what they bring to the world as well. So my experience as a, a speaker, a lecturer, and an occasional preacher, hardly ever asked back, no, I'm kidding. Um, I've often been asked questions that presume I'm the idiot in the room. And that I don't know what, I've talk, talk, what I'm talking about or that I, don't, I haven't done enough research or whatever it is. And what happens when I'm asked that question is that dialogue ends. There can be no conversation, there can be no bridge to wonder because you're always, or bridge to wondering for that matter, that's quite a nice idea, uh, because you, I'm, it, you immediately get on, both of you, the person questioning and you, get on the defensive. Oh, I need to protect my boundaries. You don't have any boundaries. Those are just illusions you've created for yourself. 
Okay, so what happens? Dialogue becomes impossible. Bad questions will make the person being questioned feel that they aren't being heard, that they're not really significant. I've kind of hinted at that already. So fourth thing about a good question is that it's concrete. It is concrete in four specific things. It looks for clarity, accuracy, relevance, and depth. So I know those, none of you are going to remember those uh, by the end of this, but looking for how can your understanding be deepened, not at the level of sort of the nebulous, but at the level of how does this help you to live or be or understand. Um, so I've got a few, a few questions that might help with this. Is there something that could be clarified in what has been said? Where did you get your facts or your opinions for that matter? How would, you have, how would what you have said be relevant in a different context? Or what are the implications of what you've said to X, Y, or Z? So you could actually go through other scenarios and go, you said this thing, that's really interesting. Uh, what about in this scenario? You're immediately looking for implications. Uh, how did you reach a conclusion? What kind of reasoning is being used? Is there reasoning being used? That's a good question. What is the logic of what, what's being said? Already you're, you're focusing very much on what is being said, not what you think about the ideas that... And I'm not saying there's no room for that. That is an important thing. It's great. But in terms of asking good questions, it's not. It's kind of terrible. Five, questions get beneath the surface. Kind of links to the, the, the point above. A key problem in the world today is that people will debate what is said without understanding that all thought is a response to a question. Every thought you've ever had, very much like what I'm seeing in Isla, she asks a question, and is, or she says something, and you presume it's a question. Yes, that is a chair. Yes, that is a tree. What's a tree? You can start to ask questions about, like, start answering the questions that she's probably got in her head. Maybe she won't fully understand them yet. But all thought is a response to question. In other words, all questions need to question not only what is being said, but question what is going on beneath what is said. It needs to, in a way, question the question beneath the statement. You can't fully understand a thought before you've understood the question that gives rise to the thought. That question, every question, good question, has an assumption in it. So if you can find that assumption and figure out what it's getting at, then you're, you're going to be on a good track. So here are some examples of questions that might help. What is being taken for granted here? What is, what is being assumed, or why is that being assumed and not something else? How are the assumptions of the speaker challenging my own assumptions? That's actually a really good, so questioning becomes, a, a, in a way, it's an exercise in discernment, but it's an exercise in self-awareness and self-critique. How can I be humble enough to suspend judgment? Humility is really not easy, especially when it comes to knowing things. So, so, so maybe that's a good question before you, you know, before you antagonize someone else. Um, and then a really tricky one. Good questions get thoughts unstuck. And one of the things, uh, another way of saying this is that a good question is incisive. It, it goes into the, the issue. It's, um, and maybe you can use questions to get a bad thinker out of a rut. This is probably the most dangerous thing I'm going to say here. But I, and I'm saying this as someone who's still learning and really not good at this. Uh, a few weeks ago, I asked a question at TGIF that I, I, it was a terrible question. 
it was mean because I knew more than what the speaker was saying on that particular issue. And it, it was incredibly arrogant to ask a question that made the speaker look like he didn't know what he was talking about. Oh, I'll forgive you. <laughs> it wasn't to you, Jan. Thank you. Um, and actually, it's one of the reasons why I went into this, because I was like, whoa, I need to do a bit of self-examination here. If I'm asking stupid questions like that, uh, I need to figure out how to do a better job at it. Um, so it is applicable. So this is applicable when you're listening to someone, you realize that they haven't thought beyond their own opinions, or that they've created a thought rut that assumes that their perspective is non-negotiable. I do struggle to listen to people who do not even listen to themselves. And I think this is why questioning begins with self-questioning. Because if I'm listening to someone, I want, I want to feel like they've actually taken their own thoughts very seriously and gone like, oh, you know what, I've, I've just assumed this thing and I wonder if that's true. Um, so, so I do want to just point that out. And the question can become then, in terms of like getting thoughts unstuck, how can I ask a question that invites a broader perspective, a deeper epiphany, a question that, of assumptions that have grounded the thinking um, of the person being questioned? So how can I question their assumptions, but in a loving, kind, humble way, not just to pull the rope from under their feet? Okay, like is there, is there a way to do that? So I, I want to add a little caveat to this. Some people are not to be reasoned with. This is something I wish I could learn. <laughs> As someone who wants to just like ask all these questions about or like challenge the thinking of a lot of people. It's really just true that some people can't be reasoned with. You cannot change their minds. But this is one of the things that questions do. You're not changing their minds. If you ask a good question, the person you're questioning might end up changing their minds on their own. So you leave the responsibility of their lives to them, not to you. That, I think that's a brilliant way of distinguishing it. So there's no pressure. You don't have to change anyone. Isn't that freeing? I think that's amazing. So when questioning, it may help to remember that there are three types of questions. There are one system questions, no system questions, and there are conflicting system questions. The one, question, uh, one system question, it's a question that doesn't have... Sorry, it's a question that does have a definitive answer. One system. So I'm, I'm hoping, you know, sort of applied mathematics that Gray works with, for instance. Most of it, like when you're within a system, there should be one answer. I say this as like non-expert, so it's so great that you're nodding your head. Thank you. <laughs> okay, but that's one system question. Then there are no system questions, and that's a question that requires a subjective, uh, a subjective choice or a story, um, and it's subjective preference or opinion. <coughs> I'm going to say this as a little aside to get you thinking. Most of the Bible is a no system question being answered. Okay, there is no system. There are stories. There are people's experiences. There, are, I mean, visions, once-off events. Okay. And then what happens is systematic theologians come along and they go, whoa, I need to find a system. But isn't, that's maybe, I think, being a bit disrespectful to the text. You're treating stories as if there's a system. Maybe there is some elements of similarity and difference and you can figure that out, but there needs to be a lot of flexibility in terms of how we do that. And I think a lot of our theological arguments 
arise from treating it as if it's a system, one system, when it is actually no system. Or maybe we should consider the third option of, of what uh, a question is. It could be a conflicting system question. This, uh, the question here is, does the question require us to consider conflicting or competing answers? Here there is often no clear right or wrong. There are just better or worse answers or better or way, worse ways of answering. And again, in theology and philosophy, this is particularly true. So, in short, I'm moving towards a conclusion. Um, good questions and good questioners are more interested in listening than in speaking. Um, every time I give a talk, one of the things that, that maybe you would like to know, maybe you don't care, I don't know, um, is that I spend an inordinate amount of time listening either to people who have written so reading extensively. I, I have a kind of general rule that I should have read at least three books on a topic before I give a talk, um, at least. Uh, and then, there, so there's a listening process, and then I ask people opinions. So last week a few of us, oh, yeah, last week a few of us actually had a conversation around questions. I think that was tremendously help it, helpful in forming this. So it's not just what I'm saying, I want to feel like I'm representing a community of people who are thinking about questions. Every academic book you've ever read has got acknowledgments in the front. And it's like, people who looked at this manuscript before, and that's true of my book, in, including that. So like, people who looked at it, people who critiqued it, people who thought it was rubbish, people who didn't want to read it, thank you to them. People who distracted me from writing this, I actually put that in my, in my book. Um, there's a community that we're part of. We're never isolated, and I think we should get over this, this individualistic uh, problem that, that has been posed by modernity. Anyway, so questions can help people to look at the world differently because they're around listening. They're about, I've actually said this in this forum before, but questions are context within which other people can think. So it's not just, it's for you too when you're asking, but it's a context. You're creating a context, a direction, an openness, and other people can then think within that. So if you want to look at the world differently, maybe you just need a good question. I found a few which I just think are wonderful. What happens if you're scared half to death twice? <laughs> and what's another word for thesaurus? Um, if you were, were to shoot a mime, would you use a silencer? Um, Maybe these are bad questions in some ways, but I think the point that I want to suggest here is if a question gives rise to dialogue, you're on the right track. If a question opens space for thought, you're on the right track. You should ask that question. If a question builds relationship, ask that question. You don't have to be friends with everyone, but, but at least try and make your enmity friendly. Um, and so I want to finish with a, a very famous quote. I'm sure most of you have heard it. Uh, from Rainer R Maria Rilke in his book Letters to a Young Poet, very romantic and everything is torture and all that stuff. But he says this one little bit, which I think is so beautiful, but it raises a question. I beg you, he says to this poet in a letter, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then someday in the far future you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into an answer. 
So I love that idea, just to live the questions, but what does that even mean and what does that look like? And I think some of what I've suggested hints at at least a direction to that, which is to live questions means being open. It means having a sense of direction, even if you don't know the conclusion. And by the way, we don't know the conclusion. People who pretend they do haven't been paying attention. Being a good questioner means, and living the questions means being empathic. It means being sensitive to clarity, accuracy, relevance, depth. It means being willing to get beneath the surface and also learning how to listen. So that's, I think that's not a bad start to learning how to live the questions. So one of the things I've, I've, I've always known, I've always known this, I don't have all the answers. But what I'm starting to learn, and I think this is a really great thing, is that I don't have all the questions either. And so I think it would be a good time to ask you questions. Is there anything in questions that you find helpful? Is there something you've learned about questioning? What have I left out? Thanks. So over to you. I'm actually asking you this time. I thought to reverse it. Steve. Experienced academics tend to struggle. <laughs> but, uh, what is the origin of your opinion? That opinion is always supporting status quo. Oh, so it's that that's not the origin of my opinion, that's Plato's opinion. Uh, <laughs> I don't think opinions are bad and I think I think it's and that's why I mentioned the no system question uh, no system questions. I think there are there are spaces where we can say, I like pizza and I don't like calamari, whatever the thing is. That is an opinion. Um, so it may not necessarily st support the status quo, that's true. And I think Plato's um, p specific context is opinions in the matters of politics and uh, just like society. There's, there's not always a lot of thought that gets given to how their understanding was arrived at. So I think. It's not that opinion itself is always evil and terrible. It's just basically what I'm encouraging is to be aware that we have opinions that maybe we need to question. That, that would be a very poor answer to that, which is wonderful. <laughs> I feel like I don't have to have the answers. This is, what, this is a, such a freeing thing. <laughs> Pilani. Thank you, thanks. Um, I have two questions, but in parts. Um, what was answered now. The first one is then how do you define opinion in this context? Because there's, there's an implied definition, this is what you said, but I'm curious as to uh, jump to assume that that's the actual, that's your actual definition. Yeah, I think the, the parameters that I gave to that would be, um, I actually defined it there. So, hang on, let me just go back to that so that I can... So, in Gautama's terms, opinion in his terms, so this is not opinion in the dictionary definition sense, this is Gautama's definition. Opinion is a refusal to acknowledge how much we don't know. So anything that, so that would exclude opinions about things like, I know that if I eat too many marshmallows, actually that's not an opinion, that's just a fact. Um, uh, <laughs> but I know that elephants do not power ESCOM. 
that is, I, I have never checked this, but I, I think there are reasonable reasons to believe this. So that, but that, but that would be just. I can in that even when I say that opinion, Eskom doesn't isn't powered by elephants. I'm presuming that I can't actually say that for absolute certain. I, there's, there's no absolute certainty there. Another, I mean, there are lots of opinions that uh, Christians have about the afterlife. And the Bible presents three options. Annihilationism, eternal conscious torment, and universalism. And they're all three there. And those were the opinions of those people. But it was a contesting system. So that's the first, I mean, it's just to raise the question of like, well, maybe there are some opinions that don't fit into this definition of opinion. But first one, refusal to acknowledge how much we don't know. The second one, a refusal to allow for other opinions, which is very common in theological discussion. We've had a few of those this year. And thirdly, it's a decision that conforms to the status quo. So by Godema's definition, it's something that affirms the status quo rather than going, well, what happens if the status quo is wrong? So there would be different kinds of opinions, but this is the kind of opinion he's referring to. Does that help to clarify that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Stella. That's not true at all. I really, because I am curious. I don't feel like I, I've covered everything. I don't think you can cover the nature of questions and everything they can do for you in one talk. It's impossible, but that's really helpful. And in terms of listening, that is exactly one of the things I've, I've started because of this thing of, of questioning is listening, questioning is dialogue, it's relationship. I've started to notice how frequently people interrupt each other. So someone hasn't even finished their thought, and the person's going, Oh, oh, oh I want to. But in here, sorry, sorry. And it's just, it's so irritating. And the worst thing is, I definitely do it too. And I really want to stop this nonsense. I think it's got to end. So, yeah, thank you. By the way, I just want to, I, I actually acknowledge Stella, but the reason I became a lecture, lecturer at all is because of Stella. So, um, she found me at a rock concert, and, and that was where it all, like, completely by accident. You know the story. I was like completely, I was in the design industry, completely lost and unsure of what direction to take. And Stella, I saw Stella, and I was always a very quiet student. I know that's hard to believe. But um, Stella came up to me and said, how are you? And I, I was just at such a terrible space and just was totally honest. I said, I'm not doing well. I really don't like design. And, I, and she said, well, what would you like to do? A question. And I said, I'd love to teach. And she said, teaching we can help with. 
<laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> so if you, if you wonder if divine intervention works through uh, people, it, it totally does. Um, so, yeah, it's nice to, and Stella's visiting from Stellenbosch University, so it's just, yeah, amazing thing. Duncan, thank you for, for that. That's uh, so I feel very similar to, to, to Stella, who is extremely guilty here, so I'm not even going to try a question. Uh, but, you know, something like this, one needs to go down and, and check yourself. It's even after a, a checklist, and then you go out and practice it. And, you know, I found that as I have the same matured, hopefully, through a place like TGIF, where I, you, you learn how to check yourself. Am I listening? Am I doing what you said, the, the last thing? So something like this, you know, I would need on my paper and go and read it through my quiet time every morning. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, and the, you know, the whole Trinity to help me through, through this thing and to test one thing every day and to see how am I doing this question thing? Because I'm, I'm being terrible now. <laughs> was not my intention. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this was, this for me, I mean, just to echo that, like, this for me was a self-reflective exercise. Uh, so I, I absolutely hear you. And I think this is why I've started with things like questioning is about being open. And it's about having a direction. And it's about, uh, yeah, so it's about being empathic. Because you're already putting yourself in, the, in a way in the back seat and you're letting the other person drive. And good relationships, you're both doing that for each other or your, you know, your friendship group. So it, it works, it creates this incredible kind of energy and I think there's, there's a way that you can find a kind of harmony there that you can't if you're constantly trying to assert your own view. So yeah, thank you. Uh, there's a question here and then. Um, we've been doing some training in spiritual direction and the and how hard it is to ask questions, especially in spiritual matters. And one of the things was, I wonder, the wondering questions is very often the least, it elicits the least effects when you wonder. It's not direct, it's not aggressively interrogating. Yes. And, which, and when we looked at the questions Jesus asked, and the challenges that are underneath these questions. All these questions are quite challenging. What do you want? Yeah. And it's amazing to look at. I, I have spoken a little bit about that. Thank you so much. The wondering is, I mean, uh, the Plato and Aristotle philosophy begins with wonder. And uh, so I think that's a, a beautiful image as well. But um, if you look at, uh, yeah, Jesus' questions, what's so interesting is he often responded to questions with questions, which is very Socratic, actually. Jesus was a Socratic question in that respect. Um, and it's amazing what happened. So he wasn't that... F it's amazing because this is God in Christian doctrine. This is God saying, well, what do you think? That's amazing. So, so some guy comes to him with a question and he goes, well... The, how do you, what do you read in the law and how do you interpret it? That's one of my favorite questions. How do you read it? How do you interpret? Jesus is saying, I want you to interpret. Which is so very unlike so many of the theologies that I've encountered, especially in sort of fundamentalist Protestant, Protestantism, which is like, there is one answer and don't, don't go outside it. That's not, that's not an answer. That's anxiety. 
Um, so I think that's really true. We are running out of time, but maybe we have one more. It's more an observation. Okay. Question. But just your um, connecting a good question with empathy, um, and just also picking up the way that Jesus asked questions. I think it allows for different personalities. Um, because we also need to remember that people ask questions from a, a specific context. Some people need to formulate the question for themselves to actually get an answer. Um, some people need to ask a question to be confronted with an idea so that they can confront themselves. So there's a, and, and I think what is amazing is that Jesus knows that. In every single question that he asks, it's particular and specific to that person. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think if we can keep that in the back of our minds, if, if we don't forget the person that we are asking the question to, that would also help in, in dialogue. That's so beautiful and a great way to end. Yeah. Thank you very much, Duncan. Uh, Thanks, everyone.